the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, spouses dish on writers, writers dine on destiny, eorks and a herd of creepy baby-headed sheep, plus part 21 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have a really special podcast this time that's a lot of fun. We call it the Bain Author Spouses Roundtable. It's a round-robin discussion by the spouses of Bain writers about both the care and feeding of their husband or wife author, as well as their own experience as being the spouse of someone crazy enough to want to make a living writing science fiction and fantasy stories. The Bain author spouses we managed to wrangle for this roundtable are um, Sharon Rice Weber, David Weber's wife, uh, Lucille Flint, Eric Flint's wife, Miriam Ringo, John Ringo's wife, Dan Hoyt, Sarah Hoyt's husband, and Bridget Correa, uh, Larry Correa's wife. So that's coming up, and it's, it's really a lot of fun, so stick around for that. And, of course, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. We have a new eARC available at BainEbooks.com. Now, an eARC is the lightning-like exclamation of joy that issues forth from an electric eel when its mate pronounces it shockingly hot after it dresses up to attend its 20th eel school reunion and disco dance. That's right, disco never went out among the knife fish. No, 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 certainly not. No, an eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy. We sell them to you because we know that the journey is sometimes a lot less interesting than the destination, and waiting three more months for a book to come out that you want now can lack all appeal. Anyway, we have 1636, The Viennese Waltz by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorge Huff. It's now out as an e-arc. This is a part of the Ring of Fire series, of course. Eric, Paul, and Gorge are the team that brought us 1635 The Kremlin Games, which, though action-filled and interesting, also provided us with ne'er-do-well hero Bernie to root for, and it's a, it's a really comic gem. I, it's one of my favorites of the uh, Ring of Fire books. So I, for one, am eager to see what Eric, Paula, and Gorge have cooked up in old Vienna, and you will be too, so check that out. This time on the podcast, we are holding a Bain Author Spouse Roundtable. We are very pleased to welcome Sharon Rice Weber, wife of David Weber, Miriam Ringo, wife of John Ringo, Lou Lucille or Lou Flint, um, she'll tell us which, wife of Eric Flint, Bridget Correa, wife of Larry Correa, and we have a male spouse in the house, Dan Hoyt, husband of Sarah A. Hoyt. Hello, folks. Hi. 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 Well, I'm going to have a heck of a time moderating this. I guess we can picture ourselves sitting at an actual round table. Sharon, Miriam, Dan, uh, 
Lou and Bridget. I didn't leave anybody out. Or however y'all want to do it. So uh, let's go for it. I suppose we can start at the beginning. How did you meet your author's spouse? Uh, did you know they were a writer at the time? And if not, what was your reaction when you found out? Shall we start with Sharon? Well, I was working at a bookstore. Uh, I was the first assistant manager, and we each had sections that we liked to read and that we were in charge of. And mine, of course, was science fiction and fantasy. And the guy came in one day, and he was looking through the science fiction books. And so I went over doing my bookseller stuff. And, you know, do you like this author? Well, if you like him, you might like this guy. And, oh, I've read that guy. No, but, oh, I like this guy. And so finally he turned around and he says, I've written a book, you know. <laughs> well, as a bookseller, you hear this a lot. <laughs> But he actually had. <laughs> and uh, uh, a couple of months later, uh, David's first book was, came into the bookstore. And since I was the receiving clerk, I opened the box and uh, bought, uh, bought probably the first copy that was ever sold because I bought it as, a, as an employee. And uh, that was how we met, was, uh, was there at the bookstore. We became friends and started kind of hanging out and going to lunch and dinner, and, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So, uh -huh. so you knew, uh, because he announced it, being David Weber. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so, Miriam, uh, how did, how did uh, you and John meet, and did you know he was a writer when you met him? He was a writer. <phone rings> met at DragonCon. Ah, DragonCon. Yeah. I had met him one year, and I talked to him, and he remembers the conversation of having a guy, which I'm very insulted by. <laughs> and then the next year, I went to a reading, and by some, everybody I asked to sit next to had we were saving the seat for somebody else, so I ended up on the front row, right in front of him, at the reading, and we've been together ever since. Ah. Now, were you um, a costumer at Dragon Con, or were you just a... Uh... I'm gothic, and I've been gothic since I was 12, so that puts uh -huh. it at 31 years now. So if that's considered costuming, it's just what I wear that's in my closet. I see. It's just Miriam. <laughs> Most people consider it costuming. <laughs> and uh, Dan, how'd you, how did you – I think you and uh, Sarah have been together quite a while. Yeah, we just had our 29th civil anniversary. How did, uh, how did you meet – she's from uh, – Portugal originally, right? Yeah, we don't have nearly enough time for the, the whole story, so I'll give you the really rich version. All right. Uh, exchange student. He was an exchange student that uh, um, came the year after I graduated high school, and uh, for reasons that I won't get into now, um, she spent a lot of time in my mother's house. So I saw her periodically on the weekends, and that was about it. Uh, and then she went back to Portugal, and we didn't talk for four years because I thought she was um, mad at me, and she thought I was mad at her. And anyway, and then she called me one day out of the blue um, while I was down living in South Carolina at that point because uh, we had met in Ohio. Um, and uh, we started talking on the phone, and that was September, and I proposed to her in January. And then I went over to ask her father for permission um, at Easter. To Portugal? Uh, and she came over. Yeah. Uh, and then she came back um, 
not with me, but uh, she came back over here in June. Um, so that was uh, pretty much it. We got married in the, uh, as I said, you know, we just had our 29th civil anniversary. Um, as most people who are actually married know, um, your marriage isn't actually legal per se. You have to have um, another legal document making it so. Um, but in Portugal, those two events can occur at vastly different times. In our case, it was uh, five months apart. So we have a wedding anniversary in December uh -huh. um, cool. as well. Now, did she, um, was she writing from the moment that you, uh, did, when she when she came over as an exchange student, was she, had she begun writing? Um, she had been writing since she was, oh, 14 or so. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. She didn't tell me that because um, what do you do with that kind of a degree? I mean, um, the, her degree is actually in languages and literature, um, but the type of degree was intended for people to become, um, well, to become ambassadors. Um, so that was the track that she was on, and she went to embassy parties and did stuff like that all, you know, while she was over there. She was quite the social butterfly. Um, but huh. after we got married, you know, I went off to work, and she would be at home all day. And uh, after a few months, I found that she was uh, talking to the walls. And I thought she was just bored, but the walls appeared to be answering her, which I found a little disturbing. <laughs> so I asked her about it, and she said, well, you know, I used to write in Portuguese, but I haven't been writing here. And I told her, um, a writer writes. If you are a writer, then you need to write. Know, just because it's in a different language than your native language doesn't mean anything. You still have to do that. So she started writing um, in English, uh -huh. obviously. <laughs> um, honestly, her English is better than yeah. most natives. So she got good at it. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, so uh, Lou, uh, tell me that you met Eric on a picket line, please. <laughs> Where did you meet him? Well, I met uh, Eric over 30 years ago, and uh, we were both um, very politically active socialists. I moved here from the Bay Area, and at that time, Eric was not a writer, although he had started writing as a teenager, but that, along with a lot of you know other things he was doing, kind of got put aside for a while. And then um, later, kind of in his mid-late 40s, came back to the writing, so... I, he was not a writer when I met him. In fact, it kind of came out of the blue. That was not the first thing <laughs> I learned about him. Right. Um, how did you feel? Uh, um, since you were both socially active, how did you, f I mean, you, you were socialist, and Eric was a union organizer. How did you feel when he sort of moved out of that and got into writing? Were you um, dismayed that he had lost his, his, uh, his calling? Oh, I don't think he's lost it, but I do. I think the you know the writing. Uh, I think uh, kind of reflects you know that history too. Um, I uh, think he yeah. brings that to it. So I think it's because you know it's become a, a different vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, and it kind of and sometimes I think you know even well, well he does a lot of different kinds of writing. But I think some of it really is kind of a summation of the work he's done over the years. Yeah. Well, we've uh, I've, of course, done numerous interviews with Eric here on the podcast, and he's given us some, some 
mm-hmm. wonderful background, and he's he's just a fascinating guy. Um, I guess you like him too. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little late to trade it in now. <laughs> oh well. So Bridget, tell me that you uh, you and Larry saw each other across a room because you were the tallest people. <laughs> How did you meet? Um, he, we met up at Utah State University, and he came up for the weekend to kind of get settled in and look for an apartment and look for a job and was staying on one of his friend's couches, and we just happened to meet sort of randomly, and it wasn't a look across the room, but I would say within the first few days, I knew that, you know, that was probably who I was going to get married to. But he had this really ugly porno stash going on on the upper lip, and I thought, well, if he, if I can get him to get rid of that, maybe there's a ch- maybe there's a chance. He wasn't I... a writer at the time; he was going to be an accountant. And for those that know Larry's writing, he wanted to work for the FBI, which like that's kind of funny now, but that's what he wanted to do. And so the writing thing is is just so opposite of what I thought that our life would be. But it's been a really fun ride, and I can't complain. Yeah. You thought you were getting an accountant. <laughs> I did. I thought I was getting Jack Bauer. Yeah. He was going to go be an FBI agent and, like, kick down doors and jump through windows. Instead, he just writes those scenes in his books. Yeah. yeah. Well, um... So let's uh let's what's a typical day taking care of your writer's spouse? Um do you have a job first of all I'd like to ask each of you have a job outside of, of home and uh what's your spouse during doing all the time that you uh that you're doing your thing? Uh I guess uh should we start again from Sharon? Uh, I I <laughs> My my job is taking care of David. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken over, you know, being his personal assistant again and uh, booking his cons and trying to keep track of everything that goes on in a house with three kids and uh, and David. <laughs> you have six dogs as well, right? Is that... <laughs> Well, we're, wow. we're we're down to four. We're down to four dogs. Uh-huh. Uh, we lost a couple in the past year, uh, but we had three cats, and um, and of course the kids. So that's uh, that's enough by itself to keep you busy. Um, and we've done so many cons and traveling this year and the next year um, that all you know, trying to juggle all of that with the kids and the homework, and you know, trying to make sure David's eating and he. He likes to write at night um, and trying to make sure that he's not spending 16 hours in his office without coming out and occasionally eating a meal or sleeping a little bit uh, can be daunting by itself. So, um, yeah, it's uh, when when he's not with me or, or the kids, he's writing or sleeping, one or the other. He uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's like Eric and, and John. You know, and, and they're uh, they're production writers, and you know he goes in and he stays in there for eight, ten, like I said, up to sixteen hours a day. So, um, so that's a task in and 
that's a full-time job just right there. Sure. Um, Miriam, how about John? Uh, well, John, I'm doing uh, online classes, and so I usually take six or seven courses at a time, which I know is stupid, but my brain just works that way. And it usually is stimulated by whatever John's writing at the time. So like when he was writing the zombie series, I was doing all that research for a good combination. Yeah. And the fact that I love research. I mean, that to me is like my true love. And he, that's the most, that's the worst word in the world you could say to him, is that he would have to research something. <laughs> so you participate in, in the, in part of the creative work. Well, no, just in the conversations. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, when he writes, he, he does it in binges. And so again, if you do have to make sure they get some sleep and you do have to make sure that they eat. You know, sweet tea is running. Cigars don't run out at my house. Uh -huh. so, uh, and then in between time, you know, then he sleeps. And then, thank heavens, we have Kelly Lockhart that comes over. And when I can't get something through John's head, I can call Kelly and say, Kelly, can you mention this to John? And Kelly can say it in a different way. So sometimes we have to bounce things back and forth between us before John gets it. But Are you both night people? Does he work at night? And are you... Oh, no. Morning person, a gothic morning person, huh? Yeah, this that sad. I sleep three or four hours a night with medication. So for me to get sleep, I have to take medication. It's only three or four hours, and usually, yeah, it's at night. So my days are a lot longer than most people. <laughs> but I volunteer. Um, I do a lot of volunteer work at the um, food bank and uh, in between my classes. Mm -hmm. What are you? What are you studying? It just depends at the moment. Um, it's forensics for fun. Um, I, I have a tendency to st stick to sciences, um, but I do take a lot of history courses, a lot of language courses, music, cor you know, music history and architecture. A lot of architecture. Mm -hmm. So anything I can get my hands on, engineering, whatever. Yeah, and whatever John's thinking about at the moment, he'll mention something. I'll get interested, and then I can have an intelligent conversation about it. Yeah, well, that's cool. Cool way to live. Um, uh, who are we to wait? Hold on, uh, Dan. <laughs> what do you do during the day, um, and uh, how do you uh, interact with with uh, Sarah? Well, I do have a job. I'm a, a career software architect. Right now, I'm working on programs that do uh, computational physics. Uh, so um, that means I'm pretty much way most of the day um, and uh, Sarah is working when I leave and she's working when I come home and she's working um, pretty much all the time she's awake that's pretty much the way it works 24-7 except for sleeping and eating I know that's not very glamorous but Yes, the way it is. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> watching a writer work is perhaps not the <laughs> not the most stimulating oh, thing. Remember, she's she's also um, she has um, she's one of the hybrid authors um, who is both traditionally and indie published. So she has do both of those, um, and indie publishing takes a lot more work than you think it does. Oh, I can imagine knowing what we do here with a lot of people. To have to do all that yourself is uh, is something. So what about uh, Lou? Um, what about you and Eric? Yeah, I do work full time. 
Um, so what do you do, Lou? Um, it's usually kind of pardon. What do you do? Yeah, I, I, oh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, so I do um, therapy with people um, through the day. Um, so we get up, a uh, cup of coffee, and uh, Eric wishes me a nice day. <laughs> I think one of the things he most enjoys about, you know, not having to work full time, you know, outside of the house is being able to set his own schedule. And he'll, you know, often put in many, many more hours, but it's at his own pace. So that's got really fun in the middle of January. <laughs> um, although sometimes I've had some health issues, and so sometimes he winds up uh, taking me to work. And actually, I, the, I think that's one of my favorite things because um, it gives us a chance to kind of talk about what he's working on. Um, I listen to people's stories all day long. Um, so one thing it's taught me to be is a pretty good listener, but, um, you know, one, one thing is most of them at least are rooted in reality. <laughs> and it's really nice uh, to be able to share, you know, some of that creativity um, with him. So uh, that's gotten to be a really fun part of it. Um and then uh, he kind of putters around the house, keeps his own schedule. That might mean he wakes up at two in the morning and starts writing. You know, we just it just kind of flows through a twenty-four hour period. Um, and I think it's one of the things I'm really most looking forward to uh, eventually with retiring is having more time to kind of enjoy that um, that with him and to and getting out. Um, I do make sure he gets out on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, it really does become kind of a writing cave <laughs> where he writes. Um, you know, did you see the sun today? <laughs> did you take out the garbage? Did you get a chance to get outside? Um, and which is really important. Um, and I've also explained to many people that he's not—he's not talking to himself. It's a creative process. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, that's been a lot of fun. And uh, Bridget, you have a you have a two year old. Yes, I have a two year old, and I have teenagers. So I am a stay at home mom who is never home, running back and forth with the kids. And um, I'm like Sharon. I it's kind of a full time job keeping everybody where they need to be and on track and making sure that Larry goes outside and sees sunshine and smells some fresh air once in a while and notices that maybe the snow melted and and I just I I keep really busy with the family and also uh I I do train cuz I try and do some triathlons and running, you know, marathons and stuff, but that's Kind of the only exciting thing I do. Everything else is just sort of being mom and trying to keep all the balls in the air. Well, what is, um, let's skip up a little bit and talk about, um, I know some of you go out with, um, with your spouses to conventions and, uh, and signings and such, and some of you perhaps don't as much. Um, 
how do you deal with the public and fans of and your spouse? Do you you take an active role? Or are you um are you a shield? Are you a sword? Or you just let them deal with that, um, Sharon? Um, oh. that's that's an interesting. <laughs> How do you answer that? Um, David really doesn't like to do conventions alone. He really likes for me to travel with him, and um, kind of like what the others were saying. That that's one of my favorite times is we actually I get to see him his face and and talk to him and actually realize that. You know, there is a relationship there that uh, he's not talking to his computer. He's actually talking to me. Um, dealing with fans can be a lot of fun. Uh, you can really meet some fantastic people. Mm-hmm. You can meet some scary people. <laughs> you can meet some people who are just a bubble off a plum, and you're like, oh, I'm so glad the children aren't with me today. Um, and I think I'm kind of... <laughs> Kind of a little bit between a shield and a sword. Um, a lot of people, David is is a big guy, and he's a little intimidating at times. He has a big voice and he's a big personality, and um, a lot of a lot of fans are those little geeky people like me who was reading science fiction and you know uh, not maybe the most sociably apt people in the world, and so a lot of times they get a little frightened of David, maybe. So I'm not a very intimidating person at all, and they'll come up and ask me a question, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm not sure I know the answer. Let's ask David. And and I really feel good when I can get that little shy person who's intimidated by David to actually open up and start talking to mm-hmm. him. And, and enjoying that conversation and, oh, my God, I'm talking to David Weber, <laughs> you know, and and just the look on their face sometimes makes that really cool. Um, and then there are times when I have to kind of go, okay, um, it's I have to I have to feed David now. I have to make sure he gets to his next panel. I have to make sure that, mm-hmm. oh, look, it's 4 o'clock in the morning and he has to go to bed now. Um, so sometimes I have to be that... Uh, that mommy person who says, okay, time mm. for bed, or okay, time for dinner. Now, do you have a signal that he can give you that he wants to go <laughs> so that you can pull him away, or is it uh, is that up to you? Don't, don't, say, don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, usually it's me giving him the signal. Okay, uh, you know, you, you, you've talked to this person for four and a half hours. It's time to go. Um, David is... Um, He's a very gregarious person. He will talk to anybody about anything for as long as they will continue listening. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, we've um, uh, we've done podcast interviews with him, and they always turn out to be two parters. Yeah, or three parters, <laughs> or four parters. Um, yeah, I, I think he's. You know, I don't let him out of that cave often enough. Um, mm-hmm. So when he's got an actual person to talk to. Uh, he gets a little crazy, and he just—he really, really likes to—he likes to finish conversations. So, yeah, I've actually had to go to uh, like uh, green rooms or con suites or whatever, hunt him down, track him down, three o'clock in the morning, and then go, okay, you've got a panel at ten, you've got to get some sleep, and you know that type of thing. So, um, like I said, I think I kind of run interference a little bit, but sometimes it can be on the positive side and. Sometimes on the negative, you know? Yeah. 
Well, uh, Miriam, you are uh, I, you and John are, are convention goers. I mean, I've I've hung out with you at conventions, and you you like it. Yeah, we've um, met at a convention. Yeah. So how is um how do you deal with the Ringo? Fans? They like Dragon Con. Yeah. Yeah, I, I oh love my Dragon gosh. Con. I love it at a place where I can get lost. Dragon um, Con is uh, we should probably tell everybody. But Dragon Con is about fifty, sixty thousand people getting together. Mm-hmm. On Labor Day, it's in Atlanta. Officially, officially, it's sixty-five thousand. Ah, but it might be more. That it's a lot more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but when we first, when I first started going, it was it was smaller. It was about forty-five thousand. Um, I've been going for fifteen years, so tells you how long I've been going. But um, you know, with the fans, it just depends. With the butterflies, it's a different. You know. It, there are the fans that you're comfortable with. There are fans that are no longer fans. They're just friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and then there are fans that you just – everything I learned, I learned from Sharon. I'm going to tell you. She, if you really want to know the truth, it's – Oh, wait, don't blame me. No, I was able to sit next to Sharon, and, and there were some things I was stressing out about, and she gave me some really great words of wisdom that kind of just let me go back to being myself, and then I realized that being myself was going to be fine. I didn't have to be a – I didn't have to be John Ringo's wife. I could just be who I was and still enjoy just being around him and getting to bask in his glow because he, he loves it so much. And he just, you know, people always ask him, will he sign my book? I'm like, well, only if he's breathing because that's his line. Um, he, he loves his fans. And so I try very hard not to pull them away unless I absolutely have to. Um, I, I, I will have a habit of getting bored very quickly. <laughs> And being ADHD and being at Dragon Con, and I don't usually take my Ritalin during that time, I'll just look at people and say, I'm bored now, and walk off. <laughs> That's kind of – so I've found a strategy for me to exit that works for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I can guarantee it wouldn't work for most people. Pretty effective, I'd say. And when a girl in a corset goes, I would go now, you just kind of let her go. Uh, but John loves his fans. There are times I've, I've had to go find him and say, okay, if you want to get sleep before your next panel – you're going to have to come to the ring. But most of the time, I just let him go at night because that's when he is enjoys it. And Dragon Con, most conventions know not to put him on an early morning panel. Nothing before 11 <laughs> o'clock usually. So. Yeah, I've seen him standing out. He gets dragged on my gossip. Three in the morning, still talking to somebody out by the <laughs> out by the front of the hotel or something. He that's what he enjoys at home. That's, that's his prime time here at the house. So that's just, that's his natural timing is that time so it just work out great for that yeah yeah so dan uh what about you and uh you and sarah with uh with sarah's uh readers well you met sarah she can take care of herself yes no doubt her shield. um i'm i am her handler at cons because she is uh, directionally impaired um and <laughs> So my main job is just get her to places that she needs to be uh, and make sure that there are ample times for uh, meal times. Um, but I, I think the days for her staying up you know, past midnight are long gone. She just doesn't do that um, anymore because she doesn't um, fall through. You know. Finding her uh, um, talking to people at 3 in the morning is uh, can be pretty tough. Yeah, so she's she pretty much deals with the uh, with her fans directly. I, I don't I don't have to, to do anything. I had to warn a couple of them to to uh, stop what they're doing before she brings the swords out. 
<laughs> do you uh do you read the blog that she keeps and participate in that or do you um just say okay that's your thing um i oh yeah i i read um i don't read every day i read all um the important ones um when she sets the internet on fire She's been doing frequently. She's a tremendous blogger with her uh, with her website and her Mad Genius Club. Yeah, um, she uh, finally had to scale back from um, the uh, uh, pajamas media though because it was just taking up too much time. Um, but yeah, I read uh, I read targeted posts. Um, I rarely respond on them because there's really very little need for me to. Um, she has a cadre of um, of fans. Um, they call themselves the Huns. Mm-hmm. Huns. Um, the Huns. Who will uh, pretty much do whatever is needed, depending upon what kind of response um, comes out. So um, we have very, very few trolls on her blog. Honestly, um, they have uh, they've learned not to tangle with her. <laughs> um, or her fans. Um, uh, in fact, um, we actually heard from um, from one of them. One of the other ones uh, was uh, somebody on another forum was uh, invoking various names, and somebody said, "Well, what about Sarah Hoyt?" And he said, "Oh, don't get her involved on there. I don't want to get in, I don't want to get into that." <laughs> Didn't want the uh, really scary reputation. The can of whoop ass to come out. So we just don't get any. Yeah. Uh, Lou, um, do you go to conventions? Have you been to them with Eric? I have. It's actually one of the things um, that I most regret is that I can't do more of that with him because I am working full-time. Um, I, I, we really enjoy it. I am a bit of a handler. I think um, we really do go enjoy going together. And they kind of run the gamut. You know, yes, is uh, 1632 mini cons. So, you know, lots of times there's a very consistent layer of people who, you know, pretty much can run that and do, you know, run that whole thing to, you know, places around the country we've been going regularly. And it, it feels like family, really. Um, and then some of the fun of going to new places where, you know, we've never been before, you know, in meeting people, um Seeing interactions on panels, that's a lot of fun um, for us, too. So I think it's one of our favorite things to do together. Um, just don't get to do it as much as I'd like to. Yeah. So you're the, are you the quiet type that sits in the audience, or are you um, the, the, the... I do a lot. I, yeah. I, I do a lot, and maybe that's just, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of used to that. I really enjoy kind of soaking up you know, kind of what's going on. Um, although, like I said, I, you know, I've made many friendships um, really around the country. You know, we both have, and that's really priceless. So, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a big one to, you know, even, you know, speak. I'm much more uh, willing to listen in some of that until, you know, you get to meet, you get to meet people over lunch or dinner or whatever. Um, so, um, you know, it really is, uh, it's very interesting. It's very interesting learning about, um, 
you know, I didn't I didn't really come into this. I read science fiction, but I didn't know anything about conventions until Eric was writing. Um, so, you know, just it, it's so impressive how, you know, these are fan run and, you know, how they work and all that. I still think that it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law now go and the grandchildren and, you know, love it. So it's actually, you know, something that's become something for the whole family um, to do, which I think is just great. Yeah. Well, Bridget, you're relatively new to this. Um, how how has it worked out that you've, uh, when, I mean, uh, did, did you go to conventions ever before? Did you know about, uh, did you go to signings and such? Uh, did it all hit you at once, or? Um, well, I've, I've kind of just gone along as his career has gone. So when he gets invited to stuff, I go. And book signings, if, if I have an opportunity to, I go. My, I, I don't really like to leave my kids when school's in and, and they're needing someone, a parent to be around to get them to where they need to go and just... School's hard on kids. They need to have mom to come home to and talk about their day. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm kind of new, but I'm really enjoying hear all, hearing all the other spouses talk about how they handle their husbands or wives. Because, yay, I'm normal. This is so the experience that I have <laughs> that I don't ever really get to talk to anybody. <laughs> I, I know alone, that this is normal. <laughs> you, yeah. you do kind of feel like you're in it alone. But I, I'm a lot like the rest. I kind of handle Larry a little bit, make sure he needs to be where he needs to be. Um, I don't ever have to be a sword. He's pretty good at doing that by himself. Mm-hmm. Although I, I do kind of try and help him manage um, when when there are fans that he, he maybe needs to pay attention to somebody else for a few minutes. I try and yeah. kind of step in and be interesting enough that they don't feel like they're getting the cold shoulder or... Because, to be honest, band fans are amazing. They're just some of the coolest mm-hmm. people, and you just meet so mm-hmm. many interesting people when I go out with Larry. And I I love it, but like I said, it, it can be difficult when trying to manage a family to go out with him. But Now, I imagine at, when you do go to science fiction conventions that you're the only one that goes to the workout room. You probably have it all to yourself <laughs> in the mornings. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, she's yeah, she's been doing that uh, PS2 or whatever they call it. Oh, my kids geez. think I'm such a loser because I'm into this boring old athletic stuff. <laughs> How can I not want to play all the role play games and read the comic books? Gee, mom is such a pathetic nerd. Yes, but if we did the other thing, it would be uncool to do that for them. So you know. Uh, yeah. Well, you'll live. You'll probably outlive them. <laughs> so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Hopefully not. No, they'll see the good example and they'll they'll follow through later on. Yeah, I just think it's funny. Like I'm the loser because everything Dad does is cool. Why would we want to follow Mom's example? She doesn't know what the hit points are for some character for some role playing game. You should be impressed I even know those words. <laughs> we are. It was, well. Hang in there. You have to roll your saving throws. <laughs> um, well, I know that, uh, 
yeah, I mean, y'all all sound like relatively creative types. And Dan, I know, is a writer. Miriam, I know, has a coffin um, and a skull collection. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, a problem with you doing your own thing? Um, do you feel like uh, you get competitive? Or have y'all figured out how to how to work it? And how do you work it, uh, Sharon? Oh, um, well, I'm not creative in the writing sense, although I have done a little bit. But um, I knit and crochet and do cross-stitch and that type of thing. is in my copious free time. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> uh, David, I think, is fascinated that I can take a, a ball of yarn and, and actually make something out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't understand that mm-hmm. process. And it kind of works, you know, I don't understand the process of his writing, how that mind can conceive of all the things that he comes up with. Um, so I think it's kind of tit for tat. Um, be- because he's out in his office, we don't really compete a lot um, as far as, you know, being creative. Um so I don't think it's it's a it's a, a competition at all. I think he just he gets perplexed <laughs> by me a lot. <laughs> You're making a hat, far far blanket. How are you doing that? I don't know, but wow, that's a really cool blanket. Okay. So um, and I, and it's the same thing with some of his stories. I don't know how your spaceship flies, uh, but it's really cool, and I'm glad you can you know make it work. So. Uh, not a lot of competition there. Yeah. So you be find ways to uh, be perplexed by each other. <laughs> is uh, Miriam? What about uh, what about you? Um, and your coffin. I enjoy knitting and, and sewing and um, embroidery and painting. Yeah. Um, I paint wallpaper for the most part. I don't paint anything worth keeping. Um, I do little coffins, uh-huh, like that, um most of my time has been in you know in school or or going to the food bank um but competition wise the only competition the one thing I have learned from Sharon, which I think is great, every time we go out to eat, all of us together, Sharon and I always try to sit away from our husbands so we can have a conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. The only time Amen. the competition comes in is because you cannot talk yeah. over them. But you can talk separately from them. And Sharon has taught me how to, you know, to just kind of sidestep this conversation they're having at one end while they're trying to compete with each other. So we yep. can have a pleasant conversation and just talk to each other. And uh, that's just a been a wonderful. Yeah, it, it, and it's just wonderful. I, every time I know that Sharon's going to be somewhere that I'm going to be, I, I get so excited because I just really enjoy spending time with her because she's just so, so much fun and so wise and just, it, she's just fun oh, to be please. around. So that's that's the only competition I, I know of that I have with him is that I you can't get a word in mm. edgewise. I mean, it just I can usually talk to him when he first wakes up because I'm just a talky talky person on occasion because the ruling just won't work. And <laughs> but especially when you don't you know, take it, you can just walk away. I'm going to have the same conversation with a cat. <laughs> I actually have to listen. <laughs> and so sometimes he just doesn't listen. He goes, "Should I've been paying attention?" I said, "No, I'll tell you when you need to pay attention." <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, competition-wise, the only thing we have competition with is getting our what, what I need to say out before he has, you know, gone somewhere else in his in his mind. Hmm. Um, well, Dan, uh, you, are you getting your writing done? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, actually, I have uh, my first novels coming up uh, probably within the next couple of weeks. How do you guys work that when you both are working on a project? Um, well, I, you have to understand something. Uh, um, when we go back to you asked, you know, about being creative types and um, all that, um, I used to write music when I was a kid. I've been playing piano for 43 years. Um, and I had a writing partner. I mean, we even have some, we have a set of songs that are copyrighted in um, in the uh, Library of Congress from the 1980s. Um, and I, but I had to get a job, and that just kind of went by the wayside. Uh, I became a writer as a defense mechanism almost. Um, we started, I realized when we were having um, writing groups, um, and Sarah formed writing groups, and we had people over. I realized that I lacked the vocabulary to be able to critique her uh, and to tell her what you know if I had problems with the writing. Or, and you know, I you know I could tell you, oh yeah, I didn't like this or I like that, but that's pretty useless. Um, and so I started studying it in order to be able to to, to converse with her about it. Um, and as I was um, after I, I started studying, I realized that I could rechannel some of my creative energies, um, which were, you know, um, really focused more towards short-form lyrical writing and try to do something longer. So the first few short stories I did were really, really bad. Um, but, uh, and, I, and it took me a while before I felt comfortable even doing a novel. So uh, we've never really been competitive. I mean, we're actually one of the few writer spouses who don't collaborate with each other. Um, it's it's not that we couldn't. Uh, it's just that there's really no need for it. Yeah. Um, so, so Sarah's uh, work sort of led you into it. Um, you might not have uh, might not have done it without her. Oh no, I definitely wouldn't have done it. Without, well, Sarah. And, Sarah and I are who we are now because of each other. We were very, mm -hmm. very different people before we You probably wouldn't even recognize either of us. Yeah. So we've kind of developed together, as it were. Oh, yeah. That's uh, probably everyone's experience if you stay with somebody long enough. Um, and Lou, how about you? With Listening to uh, to people tell their, uh, their tales during the day. Well, part of it is... Um, uh, I kind I like having a different career, mm -hmm. and I do really believe that doing that kind of therapy is pretty creative. <laughs> See, sometimes I wish Absolutely. there were more of that when I'm. Yeah. Um, so, um, one thing that we've done is. Um, I, I like to go, you know, I, I like to go to different kinds of uh, conferences and, and things with that. And we've actually, he's very good about supporting that, about supporting my career, too. So it feels, you know, in some kind of way, really very even. And he'll go with me. It, sometimes there are also excuses to travel. You know, so just like the cons are, um, you know, we'll get to go. Um, different places. His alma mater is UCLA. I, I go there for a neurobiology conference every year. 
um, and he'll he'll come and do his thing, you know, with his old professors and people he knows out there. But um, he's he's actually come to one or two things, um, you know, talking about you know what's been going on in brain research. I mean, the kind of, which is kind of a creative thing for him too. So. I, I, there's almost that kind of sense of us, support, you know, supporting each other by um, actually having a toe in. Now, I don't see myself as writing ever, but kind of sharing that process, talking over plots, talking over possibilities, and then um, the same with him supporting or or also learning some there. So that's been really fun, and if you know, so it feels like a, a parody. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, without digging too much deeper into it. So that's been really good, and it's given us both really the space to do whatever. A lot of my stuff is confidential, so that takes care of, you know, too much. <laughs> so it's really, but it's, so it's, we do a lot more just, I, I think, kind of talking about um, uh, what's going on with him. But some of that is exactly you know, without getting into confidentiality issues, you know, sometimes it really does tie into, you know, what he's thinking about or writing about or, um, so that's fun. Yeah. So it can, uh, it, at times might even feed off of, uh, of, of your experience and, and use it in his work. Uh, Bridget, do you ever drag, uh, uh, Larry out running with you? Oh no, he would have a heart attack and die. <laughs> He's not, he doesn't like, he prefers to play Call of Duty on an exercise bike and call that good. Uh-huh. And I'm okay with that. Whatever keeps him happy is what works for us. So, but I actually have a degree in art history and mm-hmm. I have my own way mm-hmm. of being creative. And I don't feel like mm-hmm. we compete at all because our worlds are, our ways of being creative are so different. But, I think that the fact that we are creative is a a positive thing. It means that when he's kind of doing something crazy, I have, I I guess I can sort of see the end result and see what it is that he's talking about and enthusiastic about. And then when I'm doing my thing that's kind of crazy, he can likewise see what the end result is going to be and be supportive of that. So, I, I mean, I don't think we've ever felt competitive with each other. There are times where I've kind of burned out of the Larry Korea show, and I think probably some of the other wives might feel that way. Or maybe Dan does, oh, yeah. Sarah, where it's like, okay, that's nice. I need <laughs> yeah. to draw a line because I need to have some me space to do, like, process through what I'm working on, and I, I don't want to deal with your stuff right now. Give me 20 minutes, and I'll come back to you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think that's really any relationship. What, uh, so we're about at the end of this. Um, what is, uh, what's the secret ingredient? I mean, all of y'all um, are, have, have pretty solid relationships, um, and I've seen some of them at, at work. Um, and uh, it's amazing that you can put up with these guys, uh, being a writer myself, I know how hard it can, <laughs> we can, we can be on you. Um, what, uh, what's the secret ingredient, Sharon? I a lot of love, a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, a lot of understanding that David can be an eight year old at times. 
when he's in rider mode, and he, I don't want to come and eat dinner now. Well, you have to. <laughs> um, I have a secret weapon, which is the kids. I make the the girls or Mikey go out and say, Daddy, it's time for dinner, and he's not going <laughs> to tell them no. So that's the secret weapon and the secret ingredient. Um uh. But I think a lot of it, I think it just comes down to understanding and, and, and love. You know, if you if you mm. love a person and you support their work and you're willing to sacrifice for the other person, knowing that there are times when they have to sacrifice for you. I mean, like Lucille, I've had some health issues in the last few years. And, you know, David has had to um, step mm. up and... and you know, be dad and uh, be yep. uh, a, a husband and take care of me when, you know, when the the time has uh, has meant that that's, uh, that's what needs to happen. And, and luckily working, you know, working out of the house, he can do that. And it's, it's not as easy as a lot of people think, oh, well, you can just make your own schedule. Yeah, but, you know, right. you're, you still got to get that work in every day. Um, you've got to get that, uh, you know, 5,000, you know, 8,000, 10,000 words in, um, in that writing session that you've got to get to get that book out on time. And, um, so a lot of understanding and, you know, a lot of support, I think, is, uh, is key. But basically it comes down to, you gotta love them. If you don't, you gotta kill them, you know? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That's, and maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason I have an empty coffin. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, sometimes it comes down to, uh, you know, he's got to sleep sometime, and if he doesn't, I'm going to kill him. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's that's our secret secret ingredient, at least. So. How about Miriam? Oh, all I can say is you got to have your timing down right. Sometimes it's a fine wire act, especially when you, I, you know, I live with a binge writer. He doesn't write every day. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to read those moods as he's going into it or as he's coming out and what I need to do in those in between times. So he's actually less work while he's writing than when he's not. Uh-huh. At least I have him on one spot when he's writing. But, yeah, it's just, you know, <laughs> it's just patience and love and kindness and just, I think kindness is just where it comes in. And, it's, and it goes both ways because I'm so odd. I feel like John actually puts out more work than I do. <laughs> so I feel more sorry for him than I do for myself. So, yeah, it, it, what Sharon says, as I said, she's probably the wisest of us all. So. Mm. Oh, please. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> uh, uh, Dan. I'll give you a quick anecdote on that. Um, we got married. My wife said, you know, I was raised Catholic. We don't believe in divorce. They can kill you and confess it later. <laughs> 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 I told Johnny had two ways out of our marriage. He could either go out feet first or get a boyfriend. Those were his two choices. <laughs> Why is that even an option? Because <laughs> that's how my last marriage ended, so I had to at least be fair. <laughs> you didn't think the, the, the end of the Queen of Wands was actually a a natural thing, did you? Uh-huh. Oh. We, we will oh. have to reserve... Uh, we're gonna to have to reserve an entire podcast for this. <laughs> for now, well, he bought me the coffin, which was his own mistake. 
Oh, well, it's nice to have a husband that'll that'll buy you a coffin, I guess. I don't... Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to go with that. Lou? Um, <laughs> what's... You know, I totally agree with um, with what Sharon said. The uh, the other two things I would add over the years is um, trusting each other. You know that we have each yeah. other's back, yeah. and and yeah. a mutual respect. However, that translates. Yeah, I think those have been the key ones for me. Yeah, I, I agree, Lucille. That's those are good points. Yeah, mm-hmm. Bridget. Secret Korea ingredients. I have kind of a, we sort of have a motto that we're Team Korea in it to win it. So whatever has to happen for the two of us to to be successful is what has to happen. And sometimes on paper it doesn't look very fair. And on, if you are on the outside looking in, you, you might wonder like, well, how, how does that work? How do you make that work? Well, it doesn't matter because it works for us, and we love each other, and we respect yeah. each other. And yep. sometimes it, the balance sheet is not even, but that's okay because yep. we're not in this for some short-term, you know, whatever we're getting out of it today. We're in it to win it. We want it to make it to the end of whatever, you know, life or whatever. And if we can can be by each other's side and old enough that we can't get off the chair by ourselves, then we'll still be Team Korea in it to win it. <laughs> Tony, can I, add, can I add one thing? Absolutely, um, yes. I, I know this sounds weird, but I know that I can take David for granted. And a lot of people look at me like, what? You know, what do you mean by that? But, you know, with the health issues, and maybe Lucille knows where I'm saying this, I, I can take David for granted. I know he's got my back. I know he's going to be there. Yeah. And he's going to do what you know what needs to be done, um, and 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 that's a, a relief. I don't have to worry. Oh my gosh, if yeah. I get sick, is David going to leave me, or you know, am I just going to be kind of floundering yeah. out in left field someplace? Um, I can take him for granted, and he can take it for granted that I've got his back, and that I'm right. going to be there right. through the thick and the thin, and the good and the bad, and richer and poorer, and all those those vows that can mean absolutely nothing to some people, but um, but I can I can take it for granted that he's going to step up and do what he you know he needs to do, and that's uh, for me and the kids. So that that's another little part of it, I think too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we are talking with Sharon Rice Weber, Miriam Ringo, Dan Hoyt, Bridget Correa, and Lou Flint, the spouses of Bain authors David Weber, John Ringo, Sarah A. Hoyt, Larry Correa, and Eric Flint. Uh, spouses, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. For thank you. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure sharing this. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. It, it was a lot of fun. It's nice knowing that there's others yeah. like you out there. Yeah. Hey, we're and, not alone. <laughs> yeah. And Bridget, if you if you ever need to call, you know, just call us or call me or call Miriam or Lucille. You know, we can absolutely so nice to know that you know, this is normal. <laughs> and I used to be a nanny, so I'm so great with kids. If you ever need me, yeah. <laughs> Bring the kids. And, Very good. And and Miriam, you know we're we're doing Dragon Con, right? We'll be there in a couple of weeks. Yes, and I was already planning on looking Oh, up. my goodness, what did you just do? Sorry. 
<laughs> That's when I'm going to, I'm going to cut on that. All right. <laughs> okay. Do you need me anymore? Thanks. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. I'll uh, I'll email everyone and tell and send them links and such. And now here is part twenty-one of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. And now here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more were so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good. Some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is being recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. This group is known as the Grimnoir Knights. If the Grimnoir are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale of humanity may be about to begin. Some, however, welcome the coming storm. Here is Bronson Pincho with part 21 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 9 My cavalry unit was camped 82 kilometers south of the Padkamanaya Basin that morning, despite driving the Green Cossack Army back for nearly three months, the Nipponese troops had withdrawn earlier in the week. Their retreat was unexpected, but a welcome chance for us to regroup, tend to our wounds, and fatten our fighting bears on the local reindeer herds. We discovered the reason for the Imperials' retreat around breakfast. A blue light appeared in the northern sky, rising from the horizon as a pillar until it disappeared into the clouds. Scouts estimated the disturbance was near the position of our main infantry encampments. Capitan Kurgan had a pocket watch. He said the disturbance started at exactly seven o'clock. Flocks of birds and large numbers of forest animals retreated past our camp in the direction opposite the light. At 7.05, the light had grown so bright that it was as if there was a second sun. Then the noise came, like the sound of artillery. The earth shook. All of us were knocked to the ground. The sky split in two and the light turned to fire. The fire grew until the entire north was fire and it came toward us. The hot wind came after the thunder, snapping down all the trees of the forest and flinging our tents. The temperature increased until it was unbearable. Our clothing caught fire and our bears went mad from the pain, turning on their controllers and rending them. I was thrown approximately two hundred meters into the river. The water boiled. That is all that I recall. Lieutenant D. Vasiliev's Animated Corpse Testimony to the Tsar's Investigative Council on the Tunguska Event, 1908 
Ogden, Utah. He'd gotten hurt pretty bad back at the cabin, though he was a lot better off than the hired thugs they'd brought with them. Thanks to the chairman's gifts, his body would be back up and running in no time. The goons would still be dead. Maddie shook his head and went back to stuffing his guts back in. The old grim noir had turned out to be one hell of a fighter, but Maddie had gotten of what he'd been after. He always did. Hold still, his companion ordered in Japanese. Yutaka was the only other survivor of their morning's work, and the iron guard was up to his elbows in Maddie's blood. He ran the needle back and forth expertly, holding the muscle together with thick cord. The healing kanji etched in scar tissue on Maddie's back had kept him alive despite being disemboweled for over an hour now, and the overtaxed words of power were burning as hot as the day he'd first been branded. This is slippery. It don't have to be pretty, Maddie grunted. The stitches just needed to hold everything in the right place until he could heal up in a few hours. He should have been incoherent with pain, but the more kanji he'd burned onto him, the stronger he became, since he was also the first white man to have the honor of being an iron guard. The fact that he was the only one of them strong enough to bear over a dozen kanji pissed the other slant-eyed bastards off to no end. Hurry up, I don't want to look all busted up when we report in. The heat from the kanji was making him sweat. He had them carved into his back, chest, legs, and arms. The downside of so many brands was that he couldn't really feel anything anymore. Maddie had taken to hurting himself just for fun. He'd actually enjoyed getting shot on this mission. The brief pain had reminded him that he could still feel anything at all. It had taken forever to drive back to the hotel from the Grimmy's podunk town, and he'd relished the suffering every mile of the way. Once Yutaka had closed him up, the summoner prepared a circle so they could confirm the success of their mission. This was no normal circle either, and Yutaka was having to draw the most intricate of magical kanji in special ink made from human blood and demon smoke on the floor. Telegrams and radio could be monitored. Even the best codes could be broken, but nobody could eavesdrop on this communication. Plus, it did have another added benefit— Maddie washed up and put on some clean clothes so he could be presentable. Twenty minutes later, he stood in front of a glowing blob floating in the center of the hotel room. The surface rippled like water, finally solidifying into a view that Maddie recognized as the Imperial Council Chambers. Maddie marveled at the clarity of the link. It was almost like looking through a door into another room of a house. He had to admit that Yutaka was an artist. Maddie's personal gifts tended to be more direct. Maddie was taken by surprise by who appeared in the rift. It was the Emperor's chief advisor, Lord Tokugawa himself, chairman of the Imperial Council and de facto leader of the Imperium. Maddie and Yutaka bowed with the utmost respect. Maddie had not expected the big boss and felt a little giddy from the excitement. It was late in the evening in Tokyo, but everyone knew that the chairman never slept. The chairman appeared to be a man in the physical prime of his life, but the word around the council was that he looked exactly the same when he first arrived at the Japanese court forty years ago. It was rumored that he did not eat or drink either, but that he was sustained on power alone. He was regal, 
handsome, distinguished with jet-black hair, wearing a western suit tonight but with the red sash badge of his office around his waist. Maddie had personally seen the chairman's displeasure cause his enemies to weep blood. He'd seen the chairman heal the incurable, kill the unkillable, break the laws of physics, and warp the fabric of reality with his mind. Maddie only respected one thing, and that was strength. You were either weak or strong. Whoever was the strongest was therefore the best, and no one could be stronger than the chairman. He'd never believed in his father's God, only in the power. The strongest wouldn't preach about mercy, peace, forgiveness, or any of that bullshit. That was all sissy talk for the weak to pretend that they still mattered. The chairman was force. He was going to inherit the world, crush the meek, and Maddie planned on being at his side when he did. The chairman was all business. It is done. Yes, chairman, Maddie answered enthusiastically. Yutaka stepped forward, deferentially, and passed the parcel containing the device through the rift. It flickered, but Yutaka's spell was perfect, and the package landed softly at the chairman's feet. No living thing could pass through a fold in space except for the wretched travelers, but a master magician could send through small bits of matter, and Yutaka was certainly a master. Very good, Iron Guard he said, and Matty felt his chest swell with pride. He bowed again. Another figure scurried into the bottom of the rift, retrieving the package. Matty recognized one of the cogs from Unit 731, the chairman's special science group. Even after all of the things that Matty had done, those weirdos still gave him the creeps. They'd been the ones to modify his body into the perfect killing machine he was today, and that had been years ago. Their work had come a long way since. He'd seen the camps in Manchuria, the experiments they were doing to the people they'd enslaved, and the things they were turning actives into. The chairman must despise weakness as much as Maddie did. Our spies should be giving us the position of the final piece shortly. You will return to California immediately. Await further instructions. Maddie didn't know who was feeding them information from the Grim Noir, but he didn't need to know. Maddie was a weapon that just needed to be pointed in the right direction. Sullivan stepped gingerly from the train platform. He was running his power just a bit, easing gravity's pull, and that made walking much more comfortable. His injuries weren't life-threatening at this point, but the last thing he needed to do was push it, rip something open, and start bleeding all over the place. Heinrich was procuring them transport to the little town that Sven Christensen lived in. Garrett was helping to make sure Sullivan didn't tumble down the ramp. He paused to catch his breath and to admire the scenery. The mountains were huge and brown. He felt a strange sensation a moment later, something odd, but familiar. Sullivan paused, scanning the crowd, but couldn't see anything out of place. The whistle blew, and the North American Pullman began to chug away. Sullivan, you all right? Garrett asked. It was like... He wasn't sure, just instincts kicking in, as if he were walking the deep woods and everything had gotten too quiet. Like there was a dangerous predator hidden somewhere in the trees... The sensation faded. He shook his head. 
No, I'm fine. Let's go. That was part 21 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the thanks of a great nation of readers running rampage through an enormous banquet hall featuring giant-sized servings of boundless thanks and praise to Bain writer spouses Sharon Riceweber, Miriam Ringo, Dan Hoyt, Lucille Flint, and Bridget Correa. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 